Brilliant. Well, uh, another good morning to you, City Church. My name is Tom, and I'm the lead elder here. Real warm welcome to you. And uh, if you have a Bible, can you turn to the book of James? James, and uh, we're going to be looking mainly uh, at from verse 8 of James and chapter 3. And uh, we are about the last quarter of a series called Steadfast, where we're looking at the book of James. And perhaps one of the ways you can understand the book of James is understanding it is a call to embrace the not particularly cool characteristic of being steadfast, but actually the incredibly important one. That in a world where people make promises, uh, where we put our hope in things that then fail, a Christian who is steadfast, a Christian man or woman who is rock-like, who is someone who just keeps going, who is faithful when they say they'll do something, they do something in the good times and in the bad, that is actually a very powerful thing. And James has been showing us again and again how this is a characteristic that when a church wants to be on mission, and what I mean by that is a church which doesn't just live for its own little needs, but actually thinks about the world out there, and with its lips and lives, is looking to proclaim the reality of Christ. When a church says, this is the direction that we believe we should go, it's a great thing, but also it's a thing that needs wisdom. You see, as we commit our lives to to being not just like a little Christian cozy bubble, all cozy together, but as we commit our lives to pouring our lives into our neighborhoods, into our friends' lives, into our workmates' friends, as we commit to do that, James is saying to a group of churches which have already committed to doing that, this is a brilliant thing, this is the heart of God, this is, this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus, however, footnote, be wise. That's really what James is about, it's be wise as you give yourself to following Christ into the mission that God has for you. And today we come to an aspect of the book of James that is absolutely critical. It's the aspect of true wisdom. True wisdom. You see, I think most people in this world want to be wise. Most people in this world, if you were to say to them, would you like to have access to practical, emotional, spiritual wisdom that will utterly throughout your life serve you in good stead? Would you like access to that, Mr. X? Probably, in fact, I'm sure everyone would say yes, yes, and amen. The slight challenge is this, is that virtually everyone on planet Earth, although they would like wisdom, want wisdom, vast majority of people on planet Earth secretly think, deep down, they're pretty wise already. And you might think, Tom, is that really true? Well, it is my hypothesis, but more than that, it is what I believe the Bible says repeatedly, is that there is an infection that all of humanity shares, which is delusion. <laughs> a delusion about our own abilities, our own intelligence, our own emotional capacities. Uh, and you can even see it in uh, secular psychology. I did a degree in psychology. And one of the, the most humorous things we studied was a hugely well-known um, psychological phenomenon, which is actually uh, what the Bible says. Something called illusory, sorry, illusory superiority. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Otherwise known as the above average effect. And what it means is, is if you ask a whole chunk of people about a certain aspect of themselves, their IQ, 
their personality, their popularity, their driving ability even, you will find a vast majority of people, a very high percentage, will say when asked, well, I know, I'm maybe not the very best, but I'm certainly above average. It's extraordinary. So if you do the maths, often you'll have 80, 90, 95% of people in any of those areas saying, I'm definitely above average, which if you think about it, kind of can't be true. Uh, even if you're not very good at maths, you kind of understand the point that there is a profound, almost humorous delusion. The above average effect, illusory superiority, it's a cognitive bias that causes people to overestimate their positive qualities and abilities, particularly seen when asked about your assessment of your own IQ, memory, cognitive tasks, academic ability, popularity, relationship happiness, health, immunity to bias, and even driving ability. That when asked about it, and this is something that's been observed since the 60s, thousands of studies have been done on this, there is an extraordinary hardwired thing in the heart of men and women when asked about where they think they lie in a population to put themselves above average on just about everything. That is because in the hearts of men and women, there is something called delusion, there is something called sin. And so James today, understanding that for churches that want to give themselves to connecting with the world out there, to being missionary-minded, we have to understand that what can happen is, at times, churches can get infected and affected by the wisdom of the world and not even realize it. So the verse we're going to focus on today, in chapter 3, verse 13, is this. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's the key he's asking, all right? Who is wise and understanding among you? But I'm just going to read this section in the context which it comes, which is actually looking particularly at the use of the tongue and the externals and connecting that with the internal realm of wisdom. So if we just back up to verse 8, he says this, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth water from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Here we go. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but but he gives more grace. Lord, come now, I pray, and give us, I pray, your your heart, Lord, your understanding. Lord, let our illuminated thinking, Lord God, just go to another level. Lord, help us to think clearly. Let us be those that biblically understand the reality of this world. Lord, I pray that you will both rid us of wrong thinking and a fresh, poor, biblical truth deep into our souls. In Jesus' name. Amen. So at one level, the, um, the structure of what we see here is very simple. Of the ten verses that we've just read, you may have spotted by the mood in the room, that seven of them are warnings about, about what I'm going to call demonic wisdom. And the reason I call that demonic wisdom is not just to be dramatic, it's because of what it says. It says it's, it says it's earthly, doesn't sound too bad. It's unspiritual, that really doesn't sound good. He then says it's, it's demonic. So he gets to the point eventually that there is a type of wisdom that is actually not just earthly and unspiritual, it's demonic. Seven of those verses are about it. However, three of them are also about heavenly wisdom, which we will get onto as well. But he starts by talking about a type of wisdom, and you can almost imagine him putting it in, in, in speech marks. Wisdom, it's not wisdom at all, but it is the way the world thinks. It's a kind of fuel that the world runs on. So if you think about you know, what you put in your car, some of you will be diesel men or women, some of you will be petrol heads. The reality is you, what you don't do is you don't mix them. You're either a petrol or a diesel. And what he's saying is, is that humans run on one or t'other. You are either someone who runs on one type of wisdom, or you run on another. Notice that he doesn't seem to imply that you can kind of have both. And this is, this is, this is scary, because he's writing to churches, okay? He's writing to churches, and he starts with a very significant warning. And what he says here, the verse 13, we mustn't miss. Who is wise and understanding among you? He seems to be addressing... A, everyone, but it's possible that he's still in the back of his mind addressing a group of people particularly that we've seen in verse 1 of chapter 3 where he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He's already sort of said, look, there are people who particularly aspire to teach and to lead. And actually he's saying you should really approach that desire with a soberness. And he seems to be potentially still addressing those same people, saying, those of you who see yourself as influencers and wise and understanding, listen up for what I want to say. It's that that kind of feel that he's saying here, same kind of people he seems to have in his mind. And what he does is, first of all, he, he gets right to the heart of the issue, which is the issue of the heart. See in verse 14, he says here, he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, They're two sides, really, of the same coin. Two elements of this fuel that can infect God's people. Selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy, it's interesting here, the word jealousy in Greek is zealous. And it's actually where we get the word zeal. Passion. It's a good word. It can be used in a good way. Romans 12 says leaders lead with zeal. It's a... It's an intense passion for something. 
That's what zeal means. And it can be a really good thing. And some of you here are zealots. You're zealous. However, it can become a bitter zealous, is what he's saying. It can become something that, you see, in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, you desire and do not have. Do you see that? He's saying that for a zealous, someone who has passion for something, but then you don't have that relationship that you want. You don't have that promotion that you desire. You don't have that voice in the church or that ministry position or you don't have that house or whatever it might be. You do not have. When you have a zealous heart and you don't have something, he's just saying be really careful. Because a good zealous zeal can turn into a, a bitter zealous, a bitter jealousy. And so what happens is then there's the focus of this is on people who do have what you don't have you find yourself quietly, subtly in your heart, slipping into a place of jealousy. And it's what the world runs on. That's why marketing is massive. That's why stirring up in people unconsciously. You only have to watch, you know, location, location. And so often when, the, you know, Phil or what's her name, Kirsty's showing them around. And they're like, I've got to have the wow factor. Why do you want the wow factor with the house? Oh, so that when my friends come in, they just are a bit jealous. And it's like, oh, <laughs> it's everywhere. It's, that's the reason. That's the reason that you're actually putting all this, your life into this, this bricks and mortar so that you can feed that art part of you. Bit of jealousy, but then the focus shifts and also selfish ambition. This type of fuel, this type of wisdom, it's not just focused on, on those who, who have what you want, bitter jealousy, but also it's this internal sense in which I should have something. You see, you can have a godly ambition, or you can be consumed with a selfish ambition. You know, Jesus says, my kingdom come. Implicit that in that is, first of all, your kingdom go. When we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, what we're saying is my kingdom, my little delusion that I am the king of my world. Go, get out of me. Do you understand that? He didn't say pray that once when you become a Christian. He said it needs to be your daily mantra, your fridge magnet of fridge magnets. Yes, your kingdom go, but Lord, first of all, your kingdom come, my kingdom go. Or else selfish ambition just seeps into us. It's so subtle. One commentator defines it as to use unworldly and unworthy divisive means for promoting your own interests it's basically pride we've got a table that will come up it's just going to help us on this in this book the emotionally healthy church if you know me you know i always go about this book it's a brilliant book you've got to buy this book it's amazing how do you know if this is an issue in your life look at these two different tables which one do you identify with if pride selfish ambition is in your life you can be guarded and protective about my imperfections and flaws, rather than transparent and weak and disclosing myself to appropriate others. If pride is in your life and selfish ambition, you tend to focus on the positive, strong, successful parts of myself rather than the weak, needy, limited parts of who I am and freely admit that I'm a failure. It means that you, we tend to be highly offendable and defensive rather than approachable and open to input. We tend to naturally focus first on the flaws, mistakes, and sins of others rather than being aware of our own brokenness and having compassion and being slow to judge others. 
We, we find that we tend to give our opinion a lot, even when not asked. And rather than being slow to speak and quick to listen. The room's gone very quiet. It's subtle is what he's saying. It's subtle. Most of us, if we said, is there selfish ambition and bitter jealousy in your heart, we probably wouldn't go, yes. We would probably think, oh, we need to make sure that's not a danger. Make sure that's not something in my life. It's actually very subtle. And that's why in verse 14 he says, don't boast and be false to the truth. Sometimes, if we are driven by selfish ambition, and sometimes we can even cause division over truth. Church history is littered with division because of truth. And sometimes we can almost even boast about it, is what he's saying. Well, this is the truth, therefore I'm going to happily divide or cause division because actually it's the truth. And he's saying, don't do that. That's not the heart of God, actually. It's interesting, in Romans 16, after this extraordinary Everest of a book, Paul says this right at the end. It's a similar thing. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, selfish ambition. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So Paul here, he's understanding the same heart of James, is that there is a subtle fuel that humans can run on. And the scary thing is the source of it is very scary. As he says here, first of all, it's earthly. You see, the world would say, wouldn't it, just get it off your chest. That's the kind of language that's around us. Get it off your chest. You've got to have a bit of a vent. Yeah? What he said is, in the, in the same chapter, verse 8, he says, he says, the tongue, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Do you see the difference there? The world around us says, get it out. Have a good old moan. You know, get it out into your small group or wherever it might be. Make sure it just doesn't stay inside. And the scary thing is, is it's totally contrary to what James is saying. He's saying, don't trust your tongue. I know I'm an emotional man. And I can, if I'm not careful, me, Tom Shaw, personally, I can be someone who is prone to speaking far too quickly out of a place of emotional hurt or whatever it might be. And then the ironic thing is, upon reflection, sometimes when I think about why I'm hurt, the reason I'm hurt is because of quiet pride. You ever had that experience? You felt hurt about something, so you voice it, and actually then you really think about it, and you think, do you know, the reason I'm hurt is not because anything's done wrong. It's because I had a sense of entitlement to this thing that I didn't even then, I didn't get. <laughs> and I felt justified in voicing what I thought. And actually, selfish ambition in my heart has led me into that place. It's very scary. He, he doesn't say, just get it off your chest. He says, be incredibly nervous about your tongue. It's a poison, is what he's saying. It can ruin communities. Be very careful. And I would say this, with our new small group structure, which is brilliant, and is all about relationships and being honest, and I love that, just a little footnote, don't forget what James is saying. Don't forget what James is saying, which is in terms of our tongue is something that we can bless God with and at the same time be a scary negative thing. 
We have to be those that understand, particularly this phrase here, verse 2 of chapter 4, when you do not have, you desire and you do not have, just recognize you're in a place of vulnerability and we need the grace of God to turn that trial not into something that becomes really scary. Because the third element here is the effect it can have. This is not my words, this is the words of James. Do you see it here? He says it can lead to disorder. Okay? It says in 1 Corinthians 14, God is a God of order. He loves good order. Not religious legalism, but good order, actually. And he's saying, if you're operating out of a place of heart with this secretly from place of jealousy or selfish ambition, and you're just being honest, you can lead to a scary disorder in the church very quickly. Disorder. He says here, he says this thing here about every vile practice. Every vile practice. <laughs> scary, isn't it? There's some people, and just drama just follows them wherever they go. A sense of, you know, as an eldership, they're in the emails. They come up more than anyone else. And there's like a disorder. There's a drama. Oh, okay, there's a change that comes, and they're the one that will complain. They're the one that will find an issue. He's saying, just make sure that you understand your heart and the fuel that you're running on. He says here, in verse 1 of chapter 4, fights and quarrels. Division. And this is the scary thing. He says, when this kind of thing runs into a church and runs into a heart, the reality is it can, first of all, have a very scary effect in the church. Every vile practice. And, you know, the reality is, I love this church, as I know you do. And as pastors, we're called, in some way, to father this church. Now, we have one father, ultimately. But I was just thinking about it. I was thinking, I know as a pastor, I'm called to care about this church, this spiritual family, like I do about my biological family. And when I sense clash between Daisy and Lily, and to a growing measure, Poppy, slightly, there's something in me that can't just allow it. It just kills me. Come on, girls, what are you doing? Don't do this. Sort this out. And that's the same heart that he's getting here. It's not okay. And when I think about this church, I am so thrilled and deeply moved at the quality and caliber of the vast majority of you, that you take this seriously. That if you hear negative stuff, you don't just let it fester, but you deal with it. Because it's very dangerous, is what James is saying. Very dangerous. But what's really scary is not just the effect it has horizontally. Did you see here the effect it has vertically? They make themselves an enemy of God. That's scary. That's really scary, isn't it? Is if we are allowing bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts to lead us into acting in the way that he's describing here. It's not just that it has a negative effect. He's saying even more than that, you place yourself as an enemy of God. That terrifies me. I mean, maybe it doesn't you. When I read that, that really cuts through a lot of my kind of, yeah, but, yeah, but. I just think, no, no, no. In fact, I mean, <laughs> again, it's not just a one-off occasion. You see here in 2 Timothy 2, 26, Paul is writing 
to this guy, Timothy. And he says to him, as a leader, you must be able to deal with people and answer their questions in a way that's patient. And then he says this, he says, talking about the people who are causing issues to Timothy, he says, the reason that you need to be patient is so that they may come to their senses and listen to these words, they may escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's Paul writing to Timothy, giving him advice on how to pastor the church. Well, 2 Timothy 2.26. Deal with these people well because it's possible they could have been captured by the devil to be doing his will. That's New Testament. That's not some wacky, crazy, additional to the Bible thought. That is the New Testament. And that scares me, and it should scare you in a good way. I don't want to be being used by the enemy. Do you? No way. But it is possible. It does happen. And I think what James is saying is, never assume. When you're running on that fuel, you're in a dangerous place, is what he's saying. Derek Reynolds, most of you will know, um, who led a New Frontiers church for 15 years. Before that, he was in a, a Baptist church. And there was this time where there was a guy in the church who started to really oppose the leaders. And he was actually kind of, he'd managed to somehow gather some impromptu family meeting. And Derek and the lead, the, the minister, the Baptist minister, were praying their hearts out somewhere before this meeting was to occur. And then suddenly they got the news through that this guy who'd been rallying support and causing division and was wanting to gather this family meeting, they got this report that he'd actually had a massive heart attack out of, out of the blue and died. And he said fear, a healthy fear, fell upon that church. I think we need to be those who say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that there is a tenderness of heart in this church. Thank you, Lord, that I genuinely believe that we hear that and it affects us in a good way. It doesn't bounce off us. Our consciences as a church say, Lord, keep me in a place where I, am, I know that I'm running as best I can on the right fuel. Because James here is lovingly warning us. But look at this glorious phrase here. Verse 6, after saying that we could become an enemy of God, he says, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. And what he's already done amidst this very sobering few verses, in verse 17 and 18, what he's also done is lifted up like a beautiful, glorious thing to aspire to. Not just a warning about drawing from demonic wisdom, but harvesting on heaven's wisdom. He says it here in verse 17, but the wisdom from above, from heaven, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, etc., etc. He says there's this stunning alternative church that you were designed to run on. Yes, to avoid with every fiber of your being that which we've mentioned, but to pursue with all your hearts this type of wisdom from above that God wants to pour, to tumble into every Christ-exalting church. A wisdom from above. 
A wisdom that is from heaven itself. A wisdom that fuels your heart that is totally different to a wisdom that you have been running on prior to becoming a Christian. And, he's, and what he describes here, do you notice the characteristics of it? It is absolutely, deliberately, gloriously an echo of what's called the Beatitudes. I.e., one of Jesus' most wonderful sermons he ever did, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, was called the Sermon on the Mount. And at the beginning of that, and we studied it two years ago, he gives these amazing descriptions of what a true Christian is. A portrait of a true Christian is someone who is, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And guess what? James is almost in exact way drawing the very same descriptions. So let me just say this. When you hear wisdom from above, you might go, oh, that sounds nice. That's the kind of things we'll do in City Kids. We wouldn't do the first bit. Oh, that's a bit scary. But we'll do this bit, pure and peaceable. That, listen, this isn't a nice little list. This is the critical, accurate description of every single Christian. This is him saying, listen, this is not some like, a little, little additional list that you should aspire to. This should be the glorious birthright of every single Christian is that you can expect this and all the commentators point out that this first characteristic here pure is kind of king of all the rest if you if you understand what it is to have a pure heart then all the others peaceable gentleness openness to reason all the others fly out of that you see Jesus said didn't he blessed are the pure in heart we live in a world which focuses on externals We live in a world which says, if I had externally better situations, then I would be better. If I had a better education, or a better upbringing, or better health, or better clothes, or better house, then I would would do better. The Bible says, no, 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 you got it the wrong way around. It's always ultimately about the heart. That's why you can be a single mum in Africa, and yet if you know Jesus Christ in your soul, you can have a purity and a joy in your heart that is 10,000 times greater than the, the wealthiest billionaire in Los Angeles. The externals are so secondary. He's saying here, it's ultimately about having a purity of heart. It's ultimately having a heart that is pure after God. And it's about a moral purity, and it's about a singleness of heart. That's the two aspects of this purity. He's saying, first of all here, it's understanding that the human heart, God wants to give us hearts that are free from the lingering effects of sin. You see, as Westerners, when we think about freedom and liberty, we tend to think about political freedom, or we think about financial freedom, or we think about external restraints that we get rid of, rather than the internal realm, which is so much the focus of the Bible, is that actually this moral purity is where Christians are increasingly able to be free from that which would impure our hearts, that would pollute our hearts. That's why in in uh, James chapter 4, verse 8, in the same uh, chapter, he's going to go on to say, purify your hearts. Purify your hearts. He's saying, as a Christian, you are able to actually engage with purifying your hearts. It's not something that you're just enslaved to. There is actual hope that wisdom from above leads to an ever-increasing purity of heart. What you are at your invisible root matters as much to God as what you are at your visible branch. To quote John Piper, moral purity, singleness of heart. I love Psalm 86 where David says, Lord, unite my heart. 
You see, to have a pure heart means you're not divided. It's already come up throughout James. A divided, double-minded man or woman, divided. Yes, on Sundays I'm after God, but the rest of my week, really? There's, there's so little expression or demonstration. Isn't that a, to have a united heart. It's that whole thing of your kingdom come, my kingdom go. Lord, Lord, unite my heart. Let it not be divided. That's what he's saying should mark out the believing community. A purity, single-mindedness of heart. It is to will one thing. To will one thing. Psalm 27, David says, Lord, one thing I seek. Just one thing. To dwell in the house of the Lord. You see, the trouble is, we kind of hear that and we go, oh, that's nice. But it really is what the Bible emphasizes, is the purity of our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be great small group leaders. No, 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 for they will see God. He's saying the only way a human can see God is to ever increasingly have a heart of radical purity. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus would not be content with a world where there's no murder and no adultery? What Jesus came for was a world where there would be no heart or intent for murder or a heart or intent for adultery. You see, Jesus Christ did not come to to reform the manners of society. Jesus Christ came to transform every human heart. Jesus genuinely wants to take us on a journey of ever-increasing purity of heart so that we are increasingly those who see God. See God. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing if someone, once you die and you go to glory, when people say your name, the first thing they would think is that person, that, that woman, she was someone, she just saw God. She, she knew God. She saw God in a way I didn't see. You see, one of the great emphases in the New Testament is about having a good conscience. I was just reading it fresh this morning in 1 Timothy, where he's saying some people have swerved, swerved from having a good conscience. He says, Timothy, you've got a good conscience. See, sometimes if your conscience is seared or damaged and you're not actually aware of it, it's a dangerous place. When your heart's tender and pure, God only has to whisper and you see him afresh. Don't you want that for your life? I know I do. I want it as much as I am both humanly but also supernaturally able to taste this side of eternity, a heart that is pure after God, that runs on that fuel. Because then what flows, he says, is he's a whole list of glorious, effectively, fruit of the Spirit. He says here, first of all, it's, it's, it's a wisdom from birth that is pure and it is peaceable. Or in the NRV, it says, peace-loving. You see, when a heart has been touched by the gospel, which says we were enemies of God, but now we are those who are his friends. We are now those who are at peace with God. We are his sons, his daughters. We are those who are now close to him. What happens is, it starts to breed in you a heart and a passion for peace. Where there could be a heart to, to be jealous about that person or have selfish ambition for my own little world, suddenly something supernatural starts to occur in your life where suddenly you desire peace. You desire actually their 
acceleration over your acceleration. And rather than wanting to find any kind of place where you can disagree, your heart is actually too agree. It's the opposite of being quarrelsome. Another massive repeated thing you see is the quarrelsome person. The person who finds their identity by always finding a problem. Yeah? An idea comes up, and because it wasn't yours, you're going to find a problem with it. That's the kind of person, he's a quarrelsome person, but actually a peaceable person who may, may spot a challenge with it, but it's done with peace and joy. This is pure dynamite is what he's saying. A peaceable person, someone who's gentle is the third element. Gentleness. Gentleness. A gentleness. Psalm 18, Psalmist says, Your gentleness, O God, has made me great. And open to reason. The fourth one. Open to reason. Teachable. 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 There is few things in this world more stunning and God-glorifying than an older man or woman who is still humble and teachable. And they're rare. But when you find them, they're amazing. There is something incredibly of God, isn't there? When you find an older man or woman and, and actually they've renounced the world's thing, which is you've arrived. And actually they're still walking in humility. And to be a Christ follower, which is a disciple, means you always are learning. So actually every Christian, even if there are a hundred, should be someone saying, mm, I'm still learning, I'm open to reason. And some of you, we've had a prophecy as a church about being a church of like Joseph's, where there's men and women who've got great callings on them, kind of the equivalent of being prime ministers. And that's a great thing. Some of you, as God's promoting you and giving you more responsibility, just check your hearts. Say, Lord, am I still teachable? In this realm, I'm the big cheese. Lord, keep me humble. <laughs> keep me humble. Because we all need to be, that's what I love about as an eldership, we're a team. Yeah? We're accountable to one another. We're constantly saying, How am I, am I, is my heart okay? It's not a one-man show. We're a team together of, of, of equals. Saying, how are we doing on this? I hope that makes you feel somewhat safer than if it was just a one-person deal leading it. Because we're vulnerable like anyone else. Open to reason, teachable, humble. And this is full of mercy. I love that, full of mercy. Not just merciful, full of mercy. It's this idea that mercy can run out. Anyone here identify with that? Yes, definitely. Mercy is exhausting. Being merciful, because mercy is not, you know, we sometimes think of mercy as in, I'll be merciful on Comic Relief Day and I'll text in a tenor. That's not mercy. That's just basic human, human compassion. That's justice. Mercy is, is not emotion only, it's action. When the person doesn't deserve it. That's exhausting at a human level. And it runs out quick unless you're drawing from a supernatural God. Unless we are constantly those who go, Lord, I know that only because of your mercy towards me could I ever be someone who's full of mercy. I have moments of mercy. I don't think most people say, Tom's just full of mercy. Oh, he never runs out of mercy. I want to be. I want to be overflowing in mercy. I, I, do you notice he doesn't say who to be merciful to? He doesn't say, in that situation, please be merciful. He deliberately doesn't. He's saying, be extravagantly merciful all the time. Is the God of the Bible merciful on certain days at certain times and certain situations? No. He is outrageously merciful. It says in Matthew 5, he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Now the problem is, when I say that to most of us, we think of ourselves as the just. And we go, oh, 
It's crazy that he sends it on the unjust. Hey, we're in the unjust category, okay? <laughs> we are. The only reason you have breath in your lungs now is because God is raining mercy on an unjust person. Isn't it funny how, and this is what James is dealing with here in chapter 2. He says here, you desire and do not have. And so, bang, you get into sin, is what he's saying. Isn't it fascinating how we get cross with God when he doesn't give us that one thing? Even though the 99 things he's given us. Do you find that interesting? I find myself much more prone to going, oh God, you're so unfair. Rather than saying, Lord, I, I can't believe that I'm still alive. And you're sustaining me. And I have all these thousands of blessings. Have you noticed that? How humans don't find it weird that God's good to us. But we do find it weird when we think God's being bad to us. Isn't that fascinating? I love what C.J. Mahaney says. He says, I'm learning to not be shocked when God stops a life. What I'm shocked now is that God still sustains mine. You see, when we start to taste just beginnings of the awesome mercy of heaven suddenly we actually can start to believe that we could grow in being those who are full of mercy. And the next thing he says is good fruits. You see, when you are someone who, who walks in mercy, remember mercy being action as well as emotion, what he's saying is you just will be someone who's fruitful. You see, if you're not someone who serves, you won't be fruitful. This is what he's saying. Mercy, full of mercy. This person's full of mercy and therefore good fruits. But if you're static and a consumer, you won't be fruitful. That's what he said. That's why it's that order. But when you give yourself to mercy, just I'm just some, I just want to serve in whichever way I can. What happens is you you become wonderfully fruitful. And I love that about your heart. I love it in this church that so many, the vast majority of you, get this and serve your socks off in your workplaces, in your marriages, in your businesses, and in the church. And so there's a fruitfulness. Don't ever stop showing mercy. That's where the fruit comes, he says. And then he says this, it's impartial. It doesn't have favorites. That's powerful. That means that we encourage with, without just encouraging people we want to encourage. We encourage liberally. We also challenge those liberally. What I mean by that is sometimes we can hold back loving, godly, humble challenge from people we think won't receive this well. And actually, we're kind of showing a favoritism because we'd do it to someone else that we think would. I remember years ago, um, I was an elder and I was going out with Josie. And I was in Vision, which is our evening meeting. And um, I can't remember who was preaching. Someone was sort of just sort of, you know, making some introductory comments. And um, I was just sort of like chatting to Josie. I was excited. We were, you know, together at an item. And um, I was trying to be quiet and everything. And the meeting went on. And then a few days later, Martin Segal, most of you all know, um, he just said to me, can I just be really honest with you, Tom? I was like, yeah. He's like, I really struggled when you were like just chatting when actually we were really meant to be modeling, listening. And it was like, bang! I was like, at first I was like, how dare you? I'm an elder. And I was like, shut up, Tom. This is a good thing that's happening. And I've never forgotten that. And that was a man living in the good of this. He, he wasn't... He knew that that was an objectively good thing to do. Oh, yeah, Tom's an elder, but actually the first thing, he's a Christian. I'm being impartial. I'm not showing favoritism because he's an elder. I'm actually lovingly, gently doing this. That is a beautiful thing. He didn't let fear stand in his way. That is maturity. That is what this church, I love. 
And then finally, he just says sincerity. Sincere. It's almost like the first, where he started with purity, very similar idea. The real McCoy. This type of wisdom, it's a sincere thing. It's not trying to be two different people. It's just being who we are. It's like why repeatedly you see this phrase, you know, we've renounced, we've renounced tampering with God's word. We don't have to try and, you know, do things in a funky, groovy way. We're just sincere. The Bible does its own heavy lifting. And what is so stunning about this list, as you meditate on it, and words that can just bounce off you, you might have read this a hundred times and thought, oh, actually, as it starts to get into your heart and your DNA, it starts to both convict and encourage, convict and encourage, convict and encourage. You find this twofold thing of, oh, ah, oh, but Lord, take it in. Yeah, That's the nature of the Bible. It convicts, oh, I'm, not that, I'm not there yet, but it also encourages and builds and builds. And this is the thing I want to end with saying is this, is when you look at these verses, when you look at these words, when you look at godly wisdom, there is no place that you see a greater demonstration of this than at the cross of Jesus Christ. You may have already seen that. When you think about why would God's son come to earth, why would he do that? He did it because of a purity of heart, a single-mindedness of heart. He put aside every other thought and he went through the cross. He went through the pain. Why? Because of a purity of heart to save wicked people like you and me. And he came to make peace. He was flooded and energized by a passion that all of heaven and all of earth would be united. Where he saw a war existing between humans and God, his heart was so flooded with a desire to bring peace and unity where there was division, he went to the cross. It was motivated by purity and peaceableness. It was characterized by a gentleness. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. When he was treated unjustly, he didn't try and soothe them. He didn't try and prove himself. He took it on the chin. It was marked by staggering mercy. And the production of it, what was the, what was the end result of the cross? Well, you could say fruit. <laughs> you could say that. His people. His church. That was his fruit. That Jesus Christ went to the cross. He defeated sin and death. He experienced your punishment and my punishment. Why? For the stunning fruit of a people. And this offer, not offer just for those who are his favorites. God does not have favorites. It's not an impartial offer. It's open to all, even you here today. And it's the real McCoy. This is a sincere offer. This is a sincere hope. It's the only true hope. The hope of God. Going to the cross defeating sin and shame on our behalf so you see when we look at this heavenly wisdom we, we have to understand we're on holy ground it is the polar opposite of that wisdom that we looked at at the beginning and so actually we're going to break bread in our final few minutes we're going to break bread and we're going to do this with that twofold mix that the scripture brings which is lord Search my heart. Search my heart, Lord. This is your time, church, now. You've come this far. If there's anything you think, Lord, you just put your finger on this. Hey, his kindness leads to repentance. If there's things that have been fueling your engine, your thought life has been consumed with other people's success or driven by other things, this is your moment. Your father's here. 
But at the same time, in the same breath, we say, Lord, fill me afresh. Flood me with the wisdom, with the spirit that is from, from heaven itself. That is actually the true hallmark of ever maturing Christians, is laying down my kingdom, embracing his kingdom. Laying down the things that can creep in and rule my heart and saying, Lord, rule afresh the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we just present ourselves before. You might just want to just even be before him now. You might want to shut your eyes or just in the stillness of this place say, Lord, Lord, I want to just say thank you that your word, your word which is somewhat hard-hitting produces soft hearts. Lord, soft words produce hard hearts. But Lord, hard words from God, loving, fatherly, firm words produce such gentleness in our hearts. And all across this room of hundreds of men and women, Lord, as we bow our hearts before you, I really want to ask, Lord God, as James says, purify your hearts. Right now, I ask for a responsibility to be taken over our hearts. Lord, we wouldn't say, I'm a victim. I'm just tumbling through my busy life. I don't really know what's going on in my heart. No, no, no. I pray now that we'll just listen to your voice. Lord, as we come to break bread, as we come, Lord God, just to, Lord Jesus, remember your body, the cost of us being made clean before you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will just, as we eat that bread, as we drink that wine, it will physically remind us of the profound cost of heaven. We thank you, Lord Jesus.